You're listening to Data Driven Performance, presented by UVic Formula Racing. All right, today we are talking about engines. This should be an exciting one, at least for me, because it's uh, something I've been doing on the team for a while. I mean, uh, we got, today uh, we got the trio here. Yeah, trio, we've got the powertrain leads. The, the powertrain leads trio here. I think this is probably one of the only times we've had three powertrain leads on the team at the same time. Um, so joined with Matt here, our usual sidekick. Hello, hello. Uh, and then we've got uh, Mike and Peter joining us for the first time. Mike's yes, the hello. current powertrain lead, if you want to introduce yourself a bit. Yeah, my name's Mike, and I've been on the team for four and a bit years. Powertrain lead for two seasons-ish, and or just about two seasons. And uh, yeah, that's about it. And uh, Peter's our upcoming team principal here. Former powertrain lead, former project manager, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, I've been on the uh, team for just over three years now and uh was sort of Blake's helper for a good little while and then became powertrain lead and uh yeah so why don't we why don't we start with kind of what what a powertrain team on an FSA team does uh, and and some of the constraints that we might face it's yeah, kind of I mean, open-ended. How about we start with like the engine selection side of things? Engine selection. Yeah, I mean, there's you got to play within the rules of FSAE, right? So you got a certain CC limit um, or cubic inch limit. And Which then, is 710 CCs currently. Mm -hmm. And then being able to source an engine that is readily available in your area. So for, for us... As, as nice it would be to have a 770 cc engine the easiest thing for us to get is like 600 cc bike engines and then you got to play within the rules of like a four stroke motors only no two stroke no two smokers uh, no rotary engines by uh, proximity and then a lot of very specific rules, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's in competition, there's only really two different camps, right? I mean, every now and then you'll see a, a three cylinder like Triumph motor or something like that, but for the most part, it's like four cylinder, 600 CC, and then like single cylinder. I forget exactly what CCs they run, but well, it kind of depends. Uh, so I, I think the popular ones are. Either the 450 or the 690, but the 690 is only in like the KTM. Right. Yeah, and then there's like the weird fringe cases where you get the uh, the people running the the V twin. Um. <laughs> yeah, and then the, like the Daytona triple. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can kind of start us off on why, what what we run as a as a team, and then why we run it. And what we run in the past. Um, currently, we run a 600cc Honda CBR RR. Um, I think it's a 2009. This this engine is roughly 2000, 2011 maybe. 
and then previously ran the Honda CBR 600F4i, um, basically just the precursor to the RR. And essentially, the main reason we run it is for um, the ease it has on our drivers and it kind of like the forgiveness for like high torque um, at lower RPMs and then basically being able to bail our, our drivers out of bad decisions <laughs> on the racetrack. That's, I mean, I guess one of the main reasons we run it, but maybe you guys can talk about some more. Yeah, well, and like, so it, it's a compromise where you're looking at a single cylinder is a lot lighter, generally speaking, because you've got fewer pistons, the block's a lot smaller. There's a whole lot of things that go into it being a smaller uh, it being a lighter engine, even at similar displacements. But because it's one huge piston reciprocating a bunch, uh, when you've got four pistons, it, one of those pistons is in your power stroke at any given time. So you, you end up with a much smoother application of power and you're able to essentially, because there's less inertia on all those pistons, you can, you can get a better um, low low RPM to high RPM, like it's a little bit smoother of a torque curve, whereas you tend to get a very peaky torque curve on a single cylinder, where if you aren't in that nice power band perfectly, you're gonna have a lot of problems getting out of a corner quickly, or, you know, you're gonna have, uh, that's, I mean, that's really the main problem. Mm -hmm. uh, or just bad acceleration. If you're not in the right gear, you might have to shift more often because that power band is smaller. All right, we have a pretty flat torque curve. Part of that's by design. Part of that's the intrinsic nature of the engine we're running. But that's really the main, that like there's trade-offs uh, to be made. And that's, that's why there's kind of, it's not necessarily right or wrong, but there's different design thought put into what do we want? Because a more experienced driver might be able to get more out of a lighter engine that makes the whole car lighter so that they can carry more speed through a corner. But a less experienced driver is going to have a hard time keeping the car on the limit of grip. So having a little bit more oomph to get yourself out of the corner once you've gone through the corner, can you can kind of not necessarily completely make up for being a, a worse driver, but you can at least... It, you're not putting as much performance on the leaving as much performance on the table. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not punished as much for any mistakes you do make. I mean, like that's not to say that uh, four cylinders can't be like extremely successful. I mean, you look at Stuttgart, right? They've been running a four cylinder for right a long time, and they are, are obviously a very top team. So, yeah, exactly. It just means it's harder to get the weight down as much and so you're having to rely on the power more versus the lightweight mm -hmm. and so and so it also kind of changes the philosophy of the whole car because you know you're in a situation where a lighter you're you're looking at a lighter car overall so you have to you have to really focus on making the rest of the car light to match that because you don't have the, the same amount of power mm-hmm but it allows it allows you a lower floor 
for like the absolute lowest weight you can hit. So it, it also makes the design a little bit, you can get a little bit, you don't have to push as hard on the design to make everything as light as possible. You can focus more on, you know, ease of manufacture and maybe not necessarily the lightest components. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is all also dependent on you having a good tune as a team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can uh, have a four-cylinder engine and it runs like crap. <laughs> yeah, a really, a really good, a re really well-tuned single cylinder that can outperform a shitty four-cylinder. Am I allowed to swear? I uh, so. I'd keep it light. <laughs> but but I can mark the episode as explicit if it gets bad. So Or I can just throw some beeps in. I don't know. We'll see. You, you can beep that if you want. <laughs> I feel like beeps are pretty entertaining. Yeah, yeah, beeps are good. Yeah. It just takes more editing. <laughs> I'll keep my like shot out of this. <laughs> I feel oh, like no. you missed the camp of all the, the teams that also run the turbochargers, which I mean tend to be the one cylinder teams just to claw back that bit of power. Yeah. So that kind of brings back to the rules because, like, theoretically, at the end of the day, it would be very easy to run a turbocharger on any of these. Like, we're smart enough that we could figure out how to route a turbocharger. It's not doesn't take a genius um but the rules come into play because we're restrict we're restricted to 20 millimeters at the uh the intake restrictor so essentially at, at one point in the flow from the air going coming in to going into the cylinders the absolute maximum amount of air can only go through a 20 millimeter hole so I was, that's what, like a dime, roughly? Yeah, but the, about, yeah. mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a dime, a dime sized hole is not very big. And so it causes a lot of flow restriction, meaning a turbo can only do so much because you're, you're already, the air speed going through a 20 millimeter hole for a, you know, a normal 600cc engine is going to be approaching the kinds of speeds that you'd basically maxing out for how fast you can move air through it, that tube anyway. So what most of the single cylinder teams are doing with the turbo is to try and flatten that torque curve so that it's not as peaky as you would get on a naturally aspirated single cylinder. Mm -hmm. It does seem like they kind of strangle the uh, replacement for displacement a little bit. Basically, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and it's, it's unfortunate because technically speaking, your engine is more efficient with a turbo. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting with uh, so many like OEM car manufacturers using uh, turbos, like especially in the past 10 years, how um, maybe they haven't, you know, opened up those restrictions for FSAE um, mm -hmm. as much to really have students kind of experiment a little bit more with the technology yeah, I, and, and get familiar with it. I get the feeling part of it is they don't want like 300 horsepower FSE yeah, cars. I think, I think that's the main, the yeah, main reason you're towing the line between student designed rockets and like, <laughs> and learning. <laughs> so you got yeah. a, a bit of a balance there. It would yeah. not take much for them to move, open up that restriction diameter for you to start be pushing some high horsepower figures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, like, probably by the time they'd hit, like, 35 millimeter restrictor, we could probably Good. be pushing 200 horsepower, even even naturally aspirated, just with a, a an aggressive tune. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's a difference between like r- regular gasoline and E85 restrictions as well. I think I think it's like slightly smaller for E85. Yeah, the E85 is a 19 millimeter restriction. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I think the big issue and the reason we haven't really bothered tackling E85 is, well, both availability, but also for the, um, because part of the competition has a um, a fuel usage check that we would probably get docked quite a bit for running E85. Mm -hmm. Probably burn through it a lot quicker. Yeah, it is very hard to get here as well. Or at yeah, least enough of a pain to make it not worth it. It seems like mostly a, a thing in the States. Go down to the pumps and get E85 there. So Until it goes bad like a month later. True. <laughs> True. Mind you, the States isn't looking amazing for gas at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, we're probably in a good spot as far as gas comes right now. <laughs> Although that said, their gas prices are probably spiking to what ours were like all of the time. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. play the tiniest violin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Like it's always funny when you're driving through uh, to competition and you're just like looking at the gas prices, like, oh my god, that would be so nice. If only. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so we've well, talked about turbos. Cutting out of the, oh. No, oh, go ahead, my, go ahead, Matt. Oh, no, it's all good. I was just going to say, even heading out of the city, you know, it's crazy how much they drop, you know, heading mm. uh, east in Canada. But, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we've, so we've talked about turbos a little bit. Um, part of, So just quickly to finish that point, though, um, part of the complication is is that the there's there's other restrictions on the routing of like where the inputs for the intercooler and like where the turbo can be in the system and like it doesn't totally make a ton of sense the way they like force the routing of the the whole turbo system so that's part of uh one of the reasons they're not as widely adopted as they probably would be um if the the rules weren't kind of yeah this is right a lot of a workaround. Uh, so yeah, so there's a lot of rules kind of against it and I can understand it because again, it'd be very easy. For, like these, some of these cars are 300 and some odd pounds and 300 horsepower in a 300 pound car is probably scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I kind of, you know, I get it, but it's mm-hmm. also kind of sad because it'd be nice. Um, and then we've also talked about engine selection. We've sort of dabbled on, I guess, why don't we talk about intakes next? Because we've kind of dabbled on it. Yeah. I mean, like at the very start of the intake, you have to have your, your throttle body before any sort of plenum as per rules. And in that throttle body, you can either have like drive by cable or you can have drive by wire. Um, the two having their, their pros and cons and, I think for four years now, we've been five years now. We've been running at least three, we've been running in three or four. I'm trying years. to think how many times I've had to fill out that form. <laughs> uh, uh, we run a electric uh, uh, throttle body. Yeah, which comes with 
a lot of different rules you got to pass for good reason because if your throttle body fails when you're driving you better have it fail in the right way yeah the only the only part that annoys me is that we have to do it and cable throttle doesn't even though there's like theoretically if if you have a it's a lot easier to jankily throw together a poorly built cable throttle system yeah. that that is like super prone to fail it's kind of oh, actually yeah. hard to throw together an electronic throttle system unless you're really homebrewing the whole thing together like haphazardly but i don't think anyone would bother at that point you might as well just do a cable throttle because it's a lot easier mm -hmm. and i don't know maybe if you want to talk about why we use why we switched to etc um so well so first the mike brings up a good point about the throttle body has to be before well it has to be before the restrictor and it has to be before the plenum which means we can't use um itbs which would be nice because um, mm -hmm. that i mean that's actually what they use on the factory motorcycle so it's kind of frustrating because if they did allow it then you could just use the factory intake and you wouldn't have to deal with uh or you could use the factory throttle bodies instead of having to like design your own rig and put on some other thing um, but as far as electronic throttle goes our main our main reason was like kind of twofold it's really annoying the the way a lot of cable throttles are like when, the way you set idle it's like basically a set screw that you just kind of like turn and it prop, props the thing open a little bit more or a little bit less and so it makes tuning idle a nightmare because you like turn it a little bit and then it went too far and then you turn it a little bit back the other way and it went too far the other way. And so you just, and then, and then you're having to like deal with your idle tune in conjunction with that. And it gets really annoying. Whereas with the idle, with most of the like aftermarket ECUs that we would be using, they have some form of idle control built into the throttle, uh, the, the electronic throttle control functions. So it allows the throttle to move uh, in and out to adjust basically to give you extra control over your idle function so that you can keep a nice tight uh, idle RPM, which is also important for our sound testing because sound testing is, a one, is the one true nightmare in the bane of all powertrain leads existence. It's own beast. So, yeah, and I mean, with the electronic throttle too, it gives us a lot more flexibility in terms of where we're taking the car, where we tune it up here in Victoria, and then we're taking it either all the way to the east coast of Michigan or down south towards the California, Las Vegas area. It's going to be a lot of different conditions. So having the electronic throttle makes it a lot easier on us to not. This is true. It'll, it'll adapt to those different conditions, whereas with the cable throttle, we'll definitely struggle with that a bit more. Yeah, you're not you're not stuck with a fixed uh, rotation for like cable movement or pedal movement. So you can adjust. Do we want the top end to be kind of light switchy? So once you get to about eighty percent on the pedal, it's basically at one hundred percent the whole time. Uh, and then we can and we can use the bottom end. We can make that a little bit more gradual. So. It, like for skid pad where you're just driving in a circle trying to keep a constant a, like a nice constant speed because the more constant you can keep your speed the 
faster you can go in a like set circle. So it allows you to get a little bit more granular down in the low end. And, and a lot of cable throttles will have like a, it's, it's non-linear rotation for like, it's basically cammed so that as the cable moves in a linear amount, the uh, butterfly valve opens in a non-linear amount. Uh, but that's mostly to counteract the fact that as a butterfly valve is opening, like each degree of rotation does not equal that same percentage of extra airflow because obviously as you like as you start opening when it's basically closed you're going to see a lot more airflow coming in because you're you've mm -hmm. got a really tiny opening and you're opening it a little bit but as you get to like almost all of the way open turning it a little bit is not going you're not going to get a huge amount of uh, of actual increases in airflow because you're going from basically un completely un unobstructed to almost exactly the same amount unobstructed. So um, yeah, so you just get a lot more control over the driver feel of how the pedal relates to how much power they're getting. And then you can adjust and it makes other things easier like uh, traction control, uh, which has been important in the rain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just like taking a peek at the rules out of curiosity. And for for cable throttles, there's about uh, about ten lines of different rules. And then for ETC, there's about three pages. Yeah, so there's just a lot of hoops you got to jump through. But yeah, and a lot of it has to do with like sensors, and because there's you you add a lot of sensors to the system. Right, you've got. And, and a lot of it, they force you to have a lot of redundancy, which makes sense because if one sensor fails, you don't want to not know about it until your driver tries to take their foot off the pedal and the system goes, oh, they still want full throttle. Okay. And then next thing you know, your car's in a wall. <laughs> yep. And then, you know, stuff, but stuff like the throttle getting stuck open by like an obstruction that's you know the stuff where like we have to be able to prove that that's safe but if that happened on a cable throttle car they don't like nothing doesn't matter well that's the thing too with like transporting the car and like even in like the pits before the race like all it takes is someone to just like slip or like the cable to be like slightly bent or something and then you've got mm -hmm. a ton of problems well, or the, the cable routing isn't great. And so it gets mm -hmm. stuck a lot. Like we had, I mean, that was another thing is we had a lot of problems with the cable getting like hung up on stuff and, and you'd, you'd go to push the pedal. And then when you bring it back, the cable wouldn't like it, it you know, it gets worn out, kind of gets stretched after a while, usually, uh, especially at the long, like the fairly long distances, because you're, it, I mean, basically, it's sort of like a mid-engine vehicle that you're cable throttling. So you've got a pretty long route for that cable that's going like all the way through your car up yeah, to like, like a, the other side of the car. Like an eight-foot-long cable about. Yeah. Well, maybe not quite, but... Yeah, it'd be about that, honestly, yeah. 
You run it on the side I, of the I know, car, and um, then it comes up and everything. Well, even that cable stretching, like I know, um, kind of ran into that a little bit back when I was doing a bit of uh, go karting, and uh, yeah, after like a few races, we did like notice the cable was like stretching a bit, and you could even tell like just driving it, like there was a little bit of inconsistency, and I think that's probably, um, you know, another thing that's you know annoying to deal with you know just when you're kind of getting used to the the throttle response and everything driving and then suddenly things are changing it's it's definitely frustrating for sure yeah so i mean that's those are all reasons that we switched over it's it's a bunch of extra work but at the end of the day i think it it has value um it's definitely something we get questioned on because anytime you're doing anything that most other teams don't tend to get more questions than if you just kind of stuck with whatever everyone else is doing. Yeah. But, it's, it's always great when you turn it around and say, why do you run a, why do you run a throttle or a cable throttle instead of ETC? And, uh, uh, uh. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just what everyone else does. That's the easy way. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Any other, I guess we should, we should maybe talk about inline, like, because so obviously single cylinder intakes, fairly simple from a, how do you get air? Cause you've only got one place for it to go. It comes in one place. It only has one place to go. Four cylinder intakes, a little more complicated. You've got mm -hmm. one place for it to come in, but four places it has to go out. So how do you balance the airflow to go into each all four of those cylinders in a like it, at least reasonably even way? Yeah, I mean, I know Pete, you designed our, our current intake system, so maybe you can shed some light on that. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about the FSA competition is that we have a lot more flexibility in terms of our intake design compared to what you'd find generally in, you know, a production car, generally because of how the engine is mounted. A lot of the time it's longitudinal, so they have to tend to do sort of the, you know, the four... Uh, say on a four cylinder, but even on a six cylinder inline, um, you'll see a lot of like the the individual runners coming out of the engine into like a log style plenum and then the air being fed into that from one end of it. And on those OEMs that it's a big struggle of trying to get the airflow to be equal across all four runners. So with FSAE, since we have so much flexibility, we can do uh the design where the all the air is fed in directly from the top and over top of all four in a generally equal fashion um, so it's definitely a lot easier to sort of maintain that aspect of the design um, but it's still a struggle as well even though with like the space constraints on the car you can only go so big on uh, how long your runners are how big your plenum is how long your uh, like intake uh, portion is before the plenum with the restrictor in it before you start taking up a lot of room on the car. Yeah, I mean, uh, we can probably talk about how we manufacture ours too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of teams you'll see either most, well, pretty much most of the teams go the route of an aluminum intake. It's generally pretty easy to manufacture. 
Um, but obviously for us, we use a uh, 3D printed intake. So we get a lot more freedom in terms of the geometry we can create uh, within the intake. We can do more complex runner geometry, more complex internal geometry with intake trumpets and just in general, more freedom to, you know, design an intake that doesn't necessarily have to be manufactured out of aluminum. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, I'm not going to jump ahead here too much, but maybe we should give a shout out to our, our wonderful 3D printing friends. This is very true. Uh, CRP USA has been doing our intakes and well, and a significant number of other 3D printing projects for us um, for the last like five years. And we have, I'm just going to say we have pushed the boundaries of what is possible um, sometimes um, and stuff's broken and then they've, they've been able to, to get us uh, fixes pretty quick. Uh, and I will say that the breakages have have all been our, our fault on the design side. So um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been, I definitely like, it's very cool to have 3D printed. I mean, our 3D printed oil pan is pretty exciting as well, just because of the fact that it manages to withstand all of that heat to the point where design judges are like confused that we managed <laughs> to pull it off. It's funny. I just went onto the CRP website and on the front page is uh, an article about how 3D printing and composite materials help streamlining SAE competition results. There's just a big article of our, our different uh, projects over the years that we've been so, uh, so lucky to have them help us out with. So yeah, we're very thankful to all of their support for our projects over the last quite a quite a good many years now uh and we're they do we do some cool stuff with them so we've recently been doing some more um arrow stuff with them lately mm -hmm. to get some cool complicated shapes with our with our arrow package yeah i mean that's uh that's a fair amount about intakes so maybe anything more about that Now, do we go to cooling or exhaust? Because I feel like we should go to cooling because I'm going to get stressed out when we talk about exhaust. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, both, are, both are a struggle uh, for different reasons. You know, cooling-wise, it's because it's just hard to manage the heat that's developed in a package that isn't super big and super heavy on the car. And then exhaust-wise, it's just very difficult to past sound restrictions mm -hmm. with off-the-shelf items and it's also pretty hard to develop your own muffler system that's going to pass any sound restrictions i will yeah, say I mean, like, go ahead Mike. even with uh even with just testing for cooling right because we're in west coast canada and like in it, during our testing season at the hottest it's going to be like i don't know like maybe 20 degrees and come next season we might be going down to nevada for our competition that's going to be 30 to like 40 degrees celsius it's gonna be twice as hot and then we're gonna to have to account for that in our testing right and it seems like every time we want to do coolant uh 
testing, it's always raining. Yes, it's like 10 degrees. Yeah, it's 10 degrees <laughs> and raining. So you, you, your cooling system doesn't really have to work all that hard when it's being splashed by cold water all the time. <laughs> that yeah. said, I think uh, one, if I was going to give a piece of advice to new or existing teams that have maybe have problems with cooling or are looking at redoing their cooling, keep it in a spot that gets fresh air. It seems like, I guess it probably sounds like a silly, overly simple piece of advice, but for years, our radiator was jammed like right behind the tire and it like got basically no airflow because of it. And so we moved it into a spot that actually gets like clean, fresh air that doesn't have to deal with tire rocks and as much. Um, and it, it so far has been a huge improvement and we've, the surface area of our radiator, okay, we use two radiators, but the overall surface area is significantly reduced. And, and thus far, since we've implemented those, we haven't run into pretty much any cooling issues. Maybe once, maybe once, but We've been doing pretty good so far. Yeah, I think a lot of them, a lot of the cooling problems we've had have been like unrelated to the cooling system. It's been like other engine problems that cause a lot of heat. Yeah, yeah. We'll gloss over that. Yeah, well. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, well, and then I think the the whole dual radiator thing. There's a whole debate over series versus parallel to connect the radiators. I honestly think it's overblown and like doesn't really matter all that much. Might be inciting some hateful emails, but I'm totally fine with that. I I, I think it's I think it's completely overblown, and I think at the end of the day, like from a theory perspective, it probably like you could probably do some hand calcs and find a difference. But once once you're out actually out on the track driving, I don't think you're gonna I. I would have to suspect that it wouldn't matter at all. And your tubing is going to be a hell of a lot simpler with the series. So hot takes. That's well, my, yeah, takes. that's, that's my hot take for the episode. <laughs> um, the that's hot it. take on cooling. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> that's, that can be the title if you want hot take on cooling. Yeah. yeah. I'll, uh, we'll go with it. I'll run with it. Let's do it. Um, anything else that anyone wants to add on the cooling side of things? That's pretty cool. I mean, we can just touch on, I mean, like rules for like coolant itself. You're not, you know, very restricted on what you can actually use. No, pretty much no additives or. Yeah. Plain water, basically. That's pretty much it. Yeah. And, and the, the reason for it, I'm told is because if it, comes out of the car which happens reasonable ask me how i know um it then it it doesn't like slick up the track for the car driving behind you because uh if your glycol mix comes out it tends to be a lot slippier and it's just bad to be dumping chemicals on the ground everywhere yeah no james bond traps for the uh other schools um should we talk about ducting versus no ducting? Uh, it's a complicated subject, I'd say. Because <laughs> my, my take on it is 
the speeds we hit, you would have to do a good job designing your ducts. Yeah, I think that's the big thing is that, you know, when it comes to the racing at FCE, the highest you, you, you're not really hitting very high speeds. So you're not really getting much of a, a ramming effect and not much of a, like a pressure differential being created between the inlet and outlet. So it's not really going to be a big driving force. So um, I've definitely seen uh, from myself uh, that just if we, you know, ran a fan the whole time on the back of it, we'd probably be better off than trying to design fancy ducts that mostly just help reduce drag more than improve our cooling. Well, there you have it. There's another hot take. Another hot take on ducts. We've got a lot. We've got a lot of them. I mean, I think that's the thing about FSA though is there's there's a lot of areas where uh, it it's easy to get caught up in this is cool. I want to do it, but at the end of the day, if you were to like uh, with a critical eye look at the result, be like, mm, maybe that wasn't the best use of my time. Maybe that is just kind of a thing that looks cool and doesn't really do all that much. Yeah, another another 10 hours spent on a tune would probably help a little bit more. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of tuning, I guess we might as well go on to exhaust. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about exhaust causing me stress, I don't really mean the exhaust. What I actually mean is the muffler. <laughs> Yeah, the exhaust fairly straightforward in your. I mean, there's definitely lots of different designs you can go with, but at the end of the day, you're it's fairly cut and dry what you're gonna do. But uh, for for mufflers, we have struggled for a very long time to pass the uh, the sound restrictions at comp on the first go. Uh, and uh, I mean, this this coming season, I've spent a fair amount of time redesigning the whole the whole exhaust system, including uh, our first forte. Actually, not really our first forte, but um, in a while, our first forte into a custom muffler design, trying to finally beat the demon that is the sound test at competition. Now, I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you because uh, you know we got to get content in here. Um, why why would we not why would we have to do a custom muffler why wouldn't we be able to buy one off the shelf well people who buy off the shelf mufflers for their their motorcycles don't exactly want a quiet motorcycle your your motorcycle comes quiet already quiet i mean quote unquote quiet but <laughs> if you're buying something new you're wanting a performance exhaust that is probably loud and probably too loud for competition i will say I have yet to see an off-the-shelf muffler that would probably pass uh, pass a uh, competition. And they don't tend to advertise as this is very quiet aftermarket muffler. <laughs> yeah. So, so it definitely, yeah, it definitely uh, causes some problems because the the off-the-shelf options are all about get more performance from your, you know, it's a less restrictive, louder exhaust because that's what people are that are buying aftermarket parts want but our competition has very strict limits that are probably like 
potentially stricter than like the average road car uh, restriction in a lot of places, but they like I think we're we're limited to 103 decibels on the C scale, which is different than the A scale. Everyone else uses the A scale, but for whatever reason, they've decided to use the C scale, which um, basically there's inaudible frequencies on the low end that the C scale counts, but the A scale doesn't count. So it might, it might not sound loud because there's low frequencies that you can't actually hear. Now, I, I don't know enough about like ear damage to know if they actually, that's those like pressure waves can actually damage your ear or not. So, I mean, I would have to assume that there would be a reason that they would have another scale. And so they would, but basically, so you can have a car that sounds quieter than another car, but actually registers higher uh, on the DBC scale because there's like basically inaudible frequencies on the low end that are um, making it louder but you can't actually hear those because they're too low. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, it's a big struggle. A lot of teams have, uh, and it ends up, you end up with some pretty funky solutions. Uh, part of it is you don't want to reflect off of surfaces because that makes things louder because they measure pretty close. They measure like a half a meter off the exit of the exhaust. So you're not, it's not like, really far away where they're measuring yeah and there's rules of like your muffler can't be i think it's more than like two feet off the ground is it something like that and there's like it has to be in a certain spot and it can't be yeah so there's no like tractor flaps and all that stuff but it's a hopefully this coming season we'll, we'll have a better better time with it but well this unfortunately still building so we'll be testing this summer, and uh, we'll we'll see. Because I I alluded to it in a previous episode, but the the solution to our muffler is too loud is a let's just say not the not the most long term solution, and not the kind of thing you want to be having to do. Yeah not a non-ideal temporary solutions might be undertaken during competition. <laughs> <laughs> but they work. Uh, is there any other design areas of exhaust that you want to go over? I mean, we can probably touch on dual versus single. And we've kind of flip-flopped back and forth over the years on what we've run in the past running a single single ed- exit exhaust on one side of the car with our radiator on the other side of the car trying to balance the weight out um, and using a like a Hindle style uh, muffler to in, in conjunction with that. And then in 2019, uh, Peter designed a dual exit exhaust system using super trap mufflers, which were slightly misleading in their, in their design instead of adding more sound dampening you just basically change the, the pitch of the the uh the exhaust note and then this season i'm designing uh back to a single single exit exhaust and then uh, as we mentioned before a custom muffler um 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I can just kind of talk about my my thought process this year. Um, in the past, it's been difficult to package a four to one collector in our headers, um, just because of proximity from the firewall to the back of the engine, and then essentially having to design from chassis up with that in mind, and then also being able to manufacture that kind of complex header geometry um, is a bit more of an undertaking than than a, a dual exit exhaust. But performance-wise, I, we do, I do expect to see a benefit from the dual exit versus uh, even from like a double Y, just a four-to-one collector without getting into to too much technical detail should give us uh, at least some marginal benefit power-wise and uh, torque-wise. Yeah, because the, like, the exhaust is a bit of a weird one because it can't necessarily improve your uh, performance if the intake is like not set up well and not done well and if your like combustion is not tuned well but it can certainly hurt you if it's designed poorly definitely there's no uh, 90 degree elbows or <laughs> sharp 90 degree pie cuts in the uh, in the header system this year not that there have been in the past but it's um yeah, there's a lot to consider when designing header geometry, trying to keep all the runners the same length and um, making sure you got proper diameters and uh, also your mid-pipe length as well, uh, optimizing your entire exhaust length for each individual component's uh, length respective to each other. And the material considerations as well. Mm. Um, like we used to do cast iron because they're nice and cheap, but they're also super heavy and it doesn't do a great job of keeping the heat in the exhaust. So you tend to get a lot of heat transfer from the exhaust into the cast iron. And then that cast iron just radiates heat off into everywhere else that you don't want the heat. Because ideally in a perfect world, you'd have all of the heat that goes comes out the exhaust would come out the tailpipe ideally because mm -hmm. you... so i'm also considering a header wrap this year It'd be a, an interesting addition because mm -hmm. because you want to insulate the exhaust system from the engine bay because heating up all of the other elements in that is not good you don't want that Yeah, I mean, like a, a large portion of the the noise that is emitted from an exhaust system is also from vibration, right? Vibration from your engine connecting with like via hard mounting to your chassis, right? So all of your aero elements, all of your nuts and bolts everywhere on the car are gonna are gonna rattle, and uh, so that's also something to think about when your car is making way too much noise. Yeah, because we don't use any sort of like in isolation mounting because typically with race cars, what you want is 
as rigid of a mount as possible for the engine so the engine has as little movement as like all so all of the movement happening with the engine is transmitted through your drive shaft rather than you know just rattling the engine around in the engine bay mm-hmm. but it causes a lot of noise causes a lot of shaking rattling and rolling yep. I guess the last thing would be transmission. Should we talk about our exciting new shifter? Yeah, I mean, there's actually, for the, the small system that it is, there's a fair amount of work being done kind of on the side, improving our, our shifting system and uh, all the components that are adjacent to it. Because um, the, the stock motorcycle engines go uh, first neutral second third fourth fifth sixth and for just as a, a basis we want for shifting it's a lot simpler if it's neutral first second third fourth fifth so you can knock lock out neutral and just shift through the gears as normal and then have a, a special neutral uh button on your on your steering wheel and the peter has undertaken the a big project this year in creating a custom gear barrel um which i don't know if you want to talk about peter yeah so it's basically just we looked at like what the uh factory honda gear barrel was and just looked at how we can move that neutral position uh before first and so um basically just had to rearrange how the tracks for the three shift forks are on the gear barrel and now we're uh we designed it so that just like the factory one, it'll be a hollow, hollow part, and then uh, we'll machine it, get it heat treated, and then uh, do all the bearing machining afterwards. But it should turn out to be a really cool part, and definitely make shifting a lot nicer. Being able to actually go into neutral should be really nice. Yeah, because uh, previously with our, our shifting system, while you were driving the car, we didn't have any any way to. Uh, shift into neutral without getting someone underneath the car jiggling the the shifter to try and find neutral rocking the car back and forth Um, and then uh, talking about the shifting system in the past we've run a pneumatic uh, cylinder based shifting system using uh, basically a paintball air tank mounted somewhere on the car with a piston uh, actuating the clutch and as well as a piston uh, changing gears uh, acting as your foot would on a motorcycle um, and it actually functions quite well but it, a it was a pain to maintain because you got to replace the air bottle and fill that up every time and then that that also adds a fair amount of weight um, you got to have pneumatic solenoids airlines running everywhere the packaging becomes a bit of a pain and then so this year we've designed or switched over to an electric based system. So instead of that pneumatic actuator acting as your, as your foot, we have a electronic actuator acting as your foot. Um, and then for the clutch side, switching to a slipper clutch, um, basically removing the need for actuating the clutch on downshifts, which on its own just removes a whole part of the system. And uh, making our, our 
shift times go down, making the weight go down, and um, as well as some other passive benefits of having a, a slipper clutch in the system as well. So there's there's gains being made across the whole powertrain system. Yeah. Well, and so for those that don't know, basically the reason neutrals between first and second on a motorcycle shift drum, it might sound kind of dumb, but basically the reason is if you are in a situation where you have to basically brake really quickly, if you're downshifting all the way down, you actually want to end up in first, not in neutral, because then like if you have to then start moving somewhere, you're already in first rather than like, oh shoot, I'm in neutral and now I have to shift again. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially a, a safety thing for motorcycles that does not necessarily translate very well into turning it into a car. Yeah, I mean, and for, for teams who run manual shifting, it's, it's a bit more feasible of an option just because you can you can feel it out where neutral is and do that by hand. But for an automatic system like we've run in the past, it's just not really possible. So this, this new gear barrel is going to kind of change the game a little bit for us. I feel like we've covered all of the major areas. If I'm missing one, now would be the time to remind me. We could maybe talk about tuning if you. Yeah. I I also I I guess oiling is technically part of cooling, but. Yeah, yeah and there's also like, while we have a separate system for the electronics, the powertrain team does tend to do a lot of the ECU setup, and the sensor setup, and and like Mike said, the tuning and everything. So. I guess we'll throw we'll we'll do like sensors and tuning, talk about that. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a huge part. You can have a fantastic engine with a fantastic intake, exhaust, and cooling system, but if it's got a terrible tune, then it's it's not going to work out so well for you. So, or if one sensor is a problem, <laughs> yeah, if a uh, crank sensor might not work properly, or I don't know something like that, then you might have some issues. Just throwing out a random example. Yeah. I just... Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean the the tune is always kind of put off to the last thing because you got to have all the other components done beforehand. So, and unfortunately, in the past for us, it's kind of been a rushed event. Uh, a lot of very late nights. We are very fortunate to have uh, our own kind of in-house dyno, though in somewhat of a various working order, but um, the fact that we have one at our, at our disposal is, is very handy. Very handy. Um, I mean, Peter, if you want to talk about, I mean, you've done the majority of the tuning in the last couple of years. If you want to kind of chat about that. Yeah. I mean, like you said, tuning's definitely, it's it's all for us it's always been that sort of last minute thing and unfortunately it is not a just a couple night thing to yeah <laughs> to finish off and dust off and it's good to go and um but yeah i mean we've in 2019 we switched ecus from a, a life racing 
to a link ECU and primarily part of that was the link just being a lot more user-friendly for us to use and for newer members to come and go and be able to learn it and pass on knowledge more easily compared to life racing. Um, but yeah, I mean, along with the e-throttle, it's, there's a lot more tuning, but at the same time, it sort of makes it easier for us. So, you know, we'll tune everything from the base fuel map to the base ignition. We'll tune cold starts, idling, acceleration enrichment, diesel enrichment, uh, and all the e-throttle stuff. So we'll try and get everything based done on the dyno. And then it's still a lot more to do even on test days with tuning the throttle and the acceleration enrichment for the drivers until they're happy with what they're getting. Um, so it's definitely not a just a couple day job for us to get done. Yeah, and that, that is a good point. You got to work with your drivers to tune the car to what feels good as well. Um, and um, kind of training your drivers a bit on how to give feedback on the on what they're experiencing while driving the car, I guess. An and it also have. takes a little, like from the tuning person's perspective, you also have to spend some time understanding like almost interpreting what a driver means when they come into the pits and say something like light switch to you, <laughs> which like if you, if you've, uh, if you've been I, interpreting, I know exactly what that means. Yeah, exactly. So it's one of those things where, you, you know, you, it takes a, you have to have a good relationship with the driver because if you don't, if you and the driver aren't communicating well and, and understanding kind of what each other need out of the car and out of each other, uh, you're not going to get useful feedback because you can have a really great, and it's, it's more so the case with the electronic throttle because of all the extra tunability we have as far as the throttle map, but you can have a really great tune on paper that gets a lot of peak torque, but it's, you know, hard to use torque, uh, that's a, a really common problem. Yeah, we get lots of flexibility with uh, electronic throttle. Using different maps as well, different throttle maps for different conditions, um, maybe, maybe a slightly less aggressive throttle map for a team appreciation day or something like that. And if it's wet out or just taking it easy, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we also get the added benefit of being able to tune for traction control and uh, launch control, which is just another benefit for our kinds of drivers who are not very skilled that they can have these assists so that, you know, in acceleration, they got launch control and in autocross and endurance, they've got the traction control so they can be a little hard on the car and not have to worry about lighting up the rear tires or anything. Because, yeah, I mean, it goes back to you can do the best job on design to make a great on-paper car, but if your driver can't use any of it, it's not going to perform well once it's actually out on track. Yeah, it's almost like um, there's three different battles for 
a powertrain system like you got your design and development and then manufacturing and then it comes down to tuning it's almost almost equal parts for all three different three different stages too and and very unique challenges really mm -hmm. cuz uh you know someone who's really good at the design portion might not be as good with the the tuning and the manufacturing side of things so it's really about find like getting all of those skills together and not forgetting about any one of those areas mm -hmm. and then having to branch out a little bit out of your comfort zone when it comes to uh, electronics as well yeah totally because that's another thing where you know you're interfacing with a lot of sensors a lot of uh you know ecu power management all of that kind of stuff that you might not necessarily think of right away but if you don't understand it like you're going to have a, a a really hard time if you have to go through your you know electrical team or whatever to get any of these problems resolved if you don't understand how that electronic system works and how all those sensors interact and you know can if you're dealing with can messages and and how all of the like one of the one of the biggest struggles with now it was a lot easier on the link ecu but with the life racing ecu getting the electronic throttle control set up was fairly difficult because there's they give you a lot of manual control over your uh, PWM uh, controls and like the PI, the different PID tuning. Uh, so there's a lot of control that you have, but it also means you have to really understand how all of that stuff works in order to, to do a good job of setting up the motor so that it's doing what you want it to do. Yeah, I mean, lots, lots to think about. One of the one of the design final questions we got that, I mean, this was also like a, a solid three hours of sleep, and it's like seven at night. You know, so you're kind after of tired. Three days of competition. Yeah, after three days of getting three hours of sleep, so you know, <laughs> brain's a little bit shot, but. Uh, one of the questions we got was basically like, what would you, as, like if you were to take this to a tuning shop and they were doing the tuning for you, which we're already confused at this point because it's not something we've ever even dreamt of. Um, but basically what would, what would you tell them that you want to, like as far as you want to see this outcome, how would you communicate you want this improved or you want this area focused on and so even that element of just understanding what all of the interplay between your fuel ratio your air fuel ratio and your your uh, spark timing and like you know what does what what do i need to change to improve this because some of it's easy. Some of it's like, oh, if I just add more fuel to a point, it's going to get, you know, I'm going to get more power. And if I add way too much fuel, it's going to be a problem. And if I 
don't have enough fuel, it's going to be a problem. And then a lot of, so that's almost the easy side of things, but then, you know, timing wise, like when do we want the spark happening? When do we want how much, uh, when do we want the fuel injection happening? There's a, there's a whole lot of really minute details that you have to kind of drill down into and understand what's doing what and, and what's important and what's not as important because some things aren't very important. Injector timing is, you know, as long as the, as long as you're in the right stroke and as long as the valves open, you're probably going to be okay. <laughs> so, so maybe don't spend a ton of time tweaking like to the, to the, you know, 0.1 of a degree, your injector timing, but you probably do want to be tuning to the 0.1 of a degree, your spark timing, because that is very important to, you know, how efficient is your burn? How much power are you producing? Are you destroying the engine? Because your spark's happening completely wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, like, there's also the tons of different kind of side effects of your of your tune, uh, like your engine health and your engine uh, cooling is affected by your tune as well. Um, all that kind of side effects that uh, come from having a good tune. Yeah, if you have a little excess fuel coming out of the tailpipe, you're gonna have an easier time controlling the heat of the engine. If you aren't and you try and run as lean as possible without like the engine actually exploding on you, you'll have a lot more problems with heat because that you're not going to have, there's no thing pulling the heat out of the cylinder beyond the coolant. Mm -hmm. I guess with all those factors in consideration, what would be, if we were to like start with a, we have a clean slate and manufacturing constraints, like pretending we're able to do like actually manufacture this properly, what would be the ideal engine configuration? So factoring in, you know, your uh, CG height, weight, power, serviceability, all of these factors. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, I won't go, I won't say much in terms of like how many cylinders you should run and uh, displacement, but I mean, a lot of factors, like, you know, taking a motorbike engine and trying to strap it into our, our car, there's a lot of factors that are really difficult to work around and some of them being you know engine mounting is probably one of the biggest things being able to mm -hmm. change how it's mounted compared to the motorbike engine just to make it easier for removing and installing the engine right now it's you know we're going through the driver's cell and it's quite a big job to get it into place but you know if it were designed in such a way that it allowed us to straight from the bottom up would completely change how we design the chassis um, another factor being the uh, cylinder head placement. Right now, we're, the engine's mounted similar to the motorbike, so exhaust is pointed sort of towards the driver's cell. 
So if we could flip that around and have the exhaust pointed already backwards would save us so much both in, you know, space constraints of the exhaust manifold um, and probably even give us more space for the intake manifold as well. Um, and I think a lot of just general design considerations, like the fact that the factory motorbike isn't designed for a dry sum system. So that would give us a lot more flexibility on that. And um, we could probably make the bottom of the engine a little wider and, you know, put the oil capacity there rather than it being really narrow at the bottom, just because that's generally how the motorbike is for their oil pan. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about more serviceable transmission, maybe a uh, detachable transmission that's not built into the engine block. Yeah, I yeah, mean, for sure nice. that, you know, I don't, for FSAE wise, like we don't need six gears. So being able to, you know, knock out two to three of those gears, and just lighten the whole system up. Um, and yeah, like you said, if more access to it than us having to basically split the whole block right now to fix or modify or anything. A shaft output would also be cool instead of a chain drive. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Mm. Now I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. Well, like you said there, I would say just integrating the differential straight into the whole transmission uh, casing. You yeah. Know, you'd be able to tighten up that package a lot more, and then yeah, you wouldn't have to rely on a chain. You could just do a direct gear drive. I will. Seeing as I have been doing the hot takes, I will uh, commit to what I think would make the most, I, so, I mean, I won't be super committal because admittedly there's, there's a lot of different ways that could be very successful and good, but I think you're looking at like a opposed two cylinder would probably be pretty good. Well, it would, it would be the best from a, like a CG height perspective and, and like probably wouldn't weigh a lot. It would be pretty good might be kind of annoying to work on. Uh, definitely would take up a lot of space, like cross-sectionally. Um, and I think that th I think the three-cylinder might be the way to go. Part, part of it's just, I think it's cool. I think it's a nice, like it's not, it's different enough from the four-cylinder. So it's not like, it doesn't feel as generic, but it's not, uh, I, I feel like the single cylinder has enough problems with the drivability that you you basically have to have like it's a lot easier to to pick up whoever uh you know is happens to want to drive and happens to be reasonably good but it doesn't necessarily have like years of professional racing experience and you can get them in the car and, and fast reasonably quickly yeah, I, had, I had a very similar thought process to you. I'm like, low CG, more like boxer engine. <laughs> Something <laughs> along that lines. Yeah, small, then, yeah. Uh, Subaru needs to start making small, low, like uh, small boxer engines, two cylinder. Yeah, I don't, uh, is there a two cylinder, like flat paint, like opposing direction cylinder? Oh, nothing new, older wise. Yeah, probably. Lots of old stuff. Yeah. I mean, in, in an ideal world, they would allow us to use rotary engines just because they're so small. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and like, what's, I think it's a uh, 650cc for one rotor, at least if you get like a stock one from Mazda. 
I would I would want to do that so badly that I would le- I would legitimately be fine if they were like you're in a separate class. Totally. <laughs> you're in the rotary class. Here you go. At that point, I think just all the teams would end up doing it. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Everyone would become rotary dads. Yeah, I can't imagine many teams would be like, yeah, why are we still running a normal engine? You don't need that like longevity of an OEM. Yeah, we Great don't we don't drive very long. They can blow up after comp. <laughs> but it'd I also mean, be a lot easier to probably get it mounted and even pull it out and maintain it or just have a oh, spare yeah. to just chuck in if it does go. You know, my, my first car was a Mazda RX-8. And it, uh, as far as I know, died around 150,000 kilometers on it. Wow. And uh, yeah, which is quite impressive for, for rotary engines. But Was it uh, like just classic Apex seals or just? Yeah, it was, it was Apex seals for sure. Dang. So previous owner probably just didn't loop it up as much as they no, should. No, I, well, I, I, I talked with that guy for like ten minutes. I'm like, this car is gonna be has been <laughs> beat the hell. Uh, but I'm very partial to rotary rotary engines. They're sweet. I mean, holy, yeah. and the sounds cool as well. A bit polarizing on the sound, but I, I love it. Yeah. All right. I guess that's the conclusion. We should be allowed to do rotary. Yes. <laughs> I will stand by that take. All right. All right. I think we're going to go with I think we're going to go with uh cooling hot takes. <laughs> yeah, cooling hot takes. All right. Thanks guys. Thanks. Great to be here. <laughs>